Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're speaking to Rani Kumar, the Deputy CEO of the National Association for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, or NAPCAN. Rani is a skilled policy analyst and advocate for children's rights with an extensive background in social policy and project management in the children's welfare field, both here in Australia and overseas. This experience goes right back to when she was a UNICEF Australian Youth Ambassador for Development in Bangladesh in 2011. Rani grew up in Western Sydney, and as the mother of two young boys and a first-generation migrant, she brings a strong personal social justice commitment to her work. She tells us how Australia is faring with the extent of child abuse on a national level, and whether that situation is getting worse or better. Rani explains how while there's a better understanding of the extent of child abuse in society, there is still a long way to go before we stop it altogether, and and we all have a part to play in that. She also explains why NAPCAN is calling for a national summit on child abuse. Rani, thank you so much for joining us on the Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so Rani, we're really looking forward to hearing about your expertise today as the Deputy CEO of the National Association for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. You've really got quite an extensive background in social policy and project management in the children's welfare field, both in Australia and overseas. But perhaps first, can you tell us about how you became involved in this area. Sure. Um, look, I wasn't really sure as a graduate what I wanted to do, but when I was in year 12 doing my HSC, I read this book called Tell Me I'm Here by Anne Deverson, and it was about her son who had schizophrenia. And it was a really tough time for them to navigate the systems. And the one person who was really helpful to them was the parole officer, because he'd often be locked up for, you know, ending up in a, in a tricky situation. Mm. And that that just motivated me to want to be a parole officer. So I started looking at degrees that would take me down that path. I ended up doing a social science degree. And as I started doing that, I realised I wanted to do policy work. It's that age-old thing of, you know, people fall off cliffs. Do you want to be the ambulance at the bottom, the parole officer, which is really important work, or do you want to try and build the fence at the top of the cliff? And I thought, 
I think I want to be the one who builds that fence. So I was lucky enough early on in my career to also get a great job as a policy officer in the foster care space. They were doing out-of-home care. And it fueled my passion to really look at the prevention of abuse and neglect. What I saw and heard from young people themselves in particular really gave me this lifelong push to dedicate you know, my career to this and use my voice so that every kid gets a fair go. And just to go add, like I grew up in Western Sydney, I'm a first-generation mother. Migrant. Yes, and so that has informed this as well, yeah, that experience? I think so. Like, you know, not necessarily pushing me into this career because lots of migrants don't go into this career. There's not many people of colour actually in the social policy field. But it did make me realise that the kids that I'd gone to school with and the way that the opportunities are shared across society aren't really fair. Mm-hmm. And where you start really does matter. So it made me feel like I want to do something about this and create more fairness and equity. As you mentioned, like a first generation migrant and also you're a mother of two boys, That that's really informed your sense of social justice and trying to do something at the, the top of the cliff, as you say. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel having those international experiences as well that you mentioned, like going to Bangladesh for UNICEF, seeing what the child welfare issues are over there, which is obviously very different, very populated country, low income, very complex sort of issues. And then bringing that knowledge back to Australia and saying, what are we doing here? And where are our gaps? And how come such a wealthy country still has so much inequity really does fuel my my passion for going, no, we've got to we've got to do better. Well, it fits in so well with the podcast. Every episode we've been talking about just what are the practical things that we can all do really to help keep mm. kids safe as a community as well as parents and carers. But can you tell us a bit about what you'll be doing with this great fellowship that you've been awarded, this Social Impact Fellowship with the Social Impact Hub? I haven't heard of them. <laughs> sure. Look, I hadn't really heard of them either yeah. until I came across this scholarship and thought, oh, this, this sounds interesting because impact is something I've been meaning to re-engage with uh, for a little while now. Having got this senior sort of executive role as a deputy CEO now at NAPCAN, I really felt, you know, we need to be thinking about impact more as a sector broadly. So often it's about evaluation or getting feedback. We're great at capturing feedback on things, but we're not so great at looking at that overall impact and not even understanding it very cohesively. And look, I know that not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted, but we need to have a go and looking at how we have that overall impact. Like how can we see those rates of children experiencing abuse reduce significantly over a generation? How can we do that? How can we see those communities that are in serious disadvantage be lifted out of that state that they're in? It's not purely money or services and a better understanding of impact, I believe, is critical to evolving as a for-purpose sector, we really need to think about how we're doing the business that we're doing, not just looking at, you know, what we're doing. And so the fellowship itself, it's 12 weeks and I'm at the end of it now. Great people. I connected with a wider network and many social entrepreneurs, actually. Mm. Lots of people doing interesting things out there. My goal was to whet my appetite for thinking about impact again, as I was saying, Mm. and bringing it back into my work. And I feel I've done that initial stage, but it's very complex and specific expertise is really required. I think what I've taken away is that, you know, we have a tendency in the not-for-profit world to try and do it all, Um, Mm. but we need specification to be really clear on what we want to achieve when we're setting up something and specialisation in terms of making sure we have the right skills, the tools and the processes to do the measuring. It's it's critical to success. So I think that's the impact message I've taken on and um, we'll try to keep cultivating. 
So you mentioned there about trying to, what can we do in a generation? Are you still optimistic that we can achieve progress in a generation, do you think, in this really complex area? I feel I have to be, yes. Mm. And I think, you know, this is a great time to be involved in the social services sector. We are seeing people becoming more aware and more um, motivated, more, you know, empowered to stand up. People are doing protests and mm. people are, you know, standing up for issues. Children's issues in particular are getting more traction. I see changes in schools, for example. As you mentioned, I've got two young boys, one of them's at school. I see the changes between what he's getting at school versus what I used to get, you oh, know. that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, so you've seen that progress already. Like they talk mm. about feeling so much. They talk about, mm. you know, how they equip parents. Well, this happens to be a public school in the inner west of Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they do say to, um, to the parents, they say, don't just ask how was your day or what did you learn today? Actually say, you know, what was the best thing about your day and what would you like to have changed? And so they're equipping people with the sort of language that you'd want to have to have these conversations. So I think there is reason to be hopeful. But I must say that the voice referendum did also put a dampener on my spirits a bit around, you know, how that progress can be made and the critical importance of bringing everyone along on this journey and not just talking to the comfortable and the familiar. It's such a tough area to work in, Rani. I'm just in admiration myself. But can you give us a glimpse of where we're at now um, with the extent of child abuse on a national level? Is, is this a situation that's getting worse or better? That is a great question. It is complex. <laughs> mm. And there have been significant gaps in our knowledge about uh, child abuse and neglect in Australia for a long time. We've been lucky, though, this year we had the release of the Australian Child Maltreatment Study. It was the first national study in the world to look at the experiences and associated health and social outcomes of all five forms of child maltreatment. It was funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council and led by Professor Ben Matthews. They surveyed about 8,500 503 Australians who were over the age of 16 to get ex like a sense of their experience of child maltreatment. Prior to this, we've only had numbers from child protection systems. So kids and families who hit that threshold and get reported to the system, as it's called. So this was a much better way of looking at the prevalence across the community and getting a better sense of what we're dealing with. And unfortunately, it showed that about three out of five, that 60% of Australians experience at least one form of maltreatment in childhood. That's either physical, emotional, sexual, exposure to domestic violence or neglect. And I don't think people realise that child abuse and neglect is this endemic, that we are more than likely to know many people who've experienced this or are experiencing it in our children's classrooms, for example, you know, some of those people in our networks. So it is, it is a much more public issue, much broader issue, and something we should all be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And the other thing the child maltreatment study findings also highlight is that the harm associated with experience of child maltreatment really, you know, crystallises early, and the differences are evident by the age of 24, and they appear to persist over the course of, you know, one's life. And the differences are still apparent many years later. So these are deeply sobering findings. That is important, isn't it? That it's not just something that happened in childhood that you put in a little cupboard in your mind. This has got ramifications through life. Absolutely. And the fact that they manifest early. So often I think people thought, oh, well, you know, then we'll deal with adults when they go to therapy or, you know, develop these sorts of conditions. And But no, actually a lot of it does manifest early.
Kelly. And one of the things that was really critical and um, for for me that really struck me was that young people who experience maltreatment are three times more likely to develop a mental health disorder by the age of 24. Mm. And they're four and a half times more likely to attempt suicide. Now, that is significant. Youth suicide rates are very concerning in Australia, particularly amongst Indigenous young people. So we've really got to think about this issue in a much wider context, not just as abuse and neglect as this individual act that happens over here, but really it has impacts over the life course. And the other thing that's really important to note is that about 40% of young people experience more than one type of maltreatment. So, Mm. you know, it's not just that they're being emotionally abused, sometimes that's along with neglect or physical abuse. And those um, multi-type exposure to abuse has worse outcomes naturally because, you know, you've had a tougher time of it. The other thing that was really interesting and needs further exploration is that girls tend to have a higher burden of child maltreatment. So girls experience more sexual abuse, emotional abuse and neglect than boys. So that's something that I think, you know, the researchers are looking into a bit more to better unpack and understand what's going on there. But it gives us some sense of the things we need to be focusing on. Um, And critically, sexual abuse and emotional abuse were seen as the most damaging forms of abuse in terms of lifelong impact. So to your question, it is a very significant issue. We are getting a better understanding of where we're at and hopefully from here this will be baseline data to better track if it's getting better or worse. One of the things that they did do is because they spoke to so many, like a whole age cohort from 16 up until I think the 70s or something, they did see that physical abuse was reported less in the younger group. So that shows us some progress, that that's That's getting better. Yeah, Yeah. you know. (laughs) But concerningly they saw that emotional abuse is increasing in the young Mm. group. So, you know, this kind of shows that maybe we've made some progress and there's some really good legislative and community education and, you know, attitudinal change around physical abuse that we can learn from and, you know, hopefully apply to the other areas. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? How aware do you think the public is of that and of the extent of this child abuse problem and and is that awareness really an important part? I don't think we have the levels of awareness of child abuse and neglect in broader society that we should have. And I think part of this is just the fact that it's a really shocking and difficult topic. So people don't really want to talk about it. It's really hard to, you know, it's not a dinner party conversation. So people often skirt around it. They don't talk about it. The other part of it is that the media tends to sensationalise particular cases and really hone in on those really crisis points or when there's the death of a child. And, of course, it's important that those things are reported, but it kind of makes people think that it is just those extreme cases and that every day experience of so many children, young people is kind of lost in that conversation. So I think we need to kind of have better ways of opening up these conversations and, you know, less stigma around talking about the fact that it, it, there's a lot of people experiencing this. And then the the point is to also then better understand why it happens. I think the reason people are reluctant to talk about child abuse and neglect is because it seems just so abhorrent, like it must be some awful, horrible, you know, demon out there that's doing these things but often it is because families are under so much stress and pressure that it is really hard to be a nurturing parent or to be really responsive in your care, particularly if you're still dealing with 
the consequences of perhaps your own child maltreatment in childhood. You know, often we see that this is an intergenerational issue. Or if you've got, you know, mental health issues yourself and you're not able to access the supports, if you're in a low-income situation, housing is unstable, you're trying to think of where to, you know, get your next job or you've got a child with a disability and you're trying to get them the services, public transport isn't always... So there's all these stresses that make it really difficult to parent in the way that we would like. Like a cumulative effect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what we see in the child protection sector broadly is that even the parents who are coming into the child protection system, they really want to do the best for their kids. They love their kids, you know. It's a really complex issue that's multidimensional, multidimensional. And it needs a social response. So the more we start talking about it, a bit like what we've started to do with domestic and family violence and violence against women, we've started to talk about it more and with a different tone to, oh, it's just a private issue between a husband and a wife or a you know, a couple. No, it's 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 got to come out of the shadows. Mm, a bit like shifting that conversation that we've seen with domestic violence as well, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's exactly very similar to that. And I think with children, it's just a little bit more complex where people mm. feel this protective urge, you know. So it's like, oh, no, don't even want to engage with thinking that the parents might in some cases need extra support. But we know that children do better when their parents are supported and children want to be with their parents. So as a society, I think that's our responsibility. Oh, it's just so interesting, Rani. It takes me back to a statistic that really stayed with me from one of the Keeping Kids Safe, Bright Futures forums that the Daniel Morecambe Foundation has been doing. And there was one in Sydney where the National Office of Child Safety mentioned that nine in 10 people, including parents and carers, think it's really important to keep children safe, but only four in 10 feel confident to talk about it, to have the conversation that we're talking about, about child abuse. So how do you think we can better equip parents so that we all feel more confident and confident to have these brave conversations. Yeah, look, that is really complex and there's some really great resources out there. But I just wanted to share this um, anecdote, this story that really struck me from a session I attended with the AFP around online exploitation of children. Mm. And they said there was this child being groomed online by a predator and they were encouraged to share an indecent photo. They did that thinking that this predator was a young person that they were kind of becoming friends with. But when they next logged on, the predator then threatened to show their parents this image if they didn't take more explicit photos and more and more and keep sending them. The child was really distraught, but they felt they couldn't possibly tell their parents that they were online on these particular platforms. So they continued to participate in this, you know, exploitation by this predator. When the case was busted by the AFP, the parents were mortified that their child had been through all of this and that they weren't aware. They kept saying, why don't you tell us? We wouldn't have been angry. We would have helped, you know. So the AFP's point was that for parents, we should try and be the parent that when something goes wrong, your child thinks, oh, I've stuffed up. I've got to tell mum and dad they're going to help me. Not, oh, I've stuffed up. I can't tell mum and dad they're going to kill me. I'm in so much trouble, you know. Mm. So you want to be building that relationship from an early stage. It starts with, you know, having conversations when they're little kids and really being their safe place to admit their mistakes or transgressions, you know, like, oh, I might have broken that vase or, you know, scribbled on the wall or something and while you might feel that anger and that frustration to be that place to go well thank you for being honest with me you know because these mistakes can escalate over time 
they become more serious. So parents need to kind of be more comfortable being their child's safety net and having these conversations, particularly about sex and Mm. safety. It's quite awkward for most, you know, parents to talk about it. But the more you become comfortable just kind of checking in and opening that, you know, dialogue, the better it is. And there's some great resources out there with obviously the Daniel Walken Foundation, Mm. the eSafety Commission, Raising Children Network. And don't be afraid to ask, you know, ask your social network, ask your the other mums and dads at your child's school ask the childcare um, educators and directors they often have great ideas or books and things that can really help because it is critical to have these conversations to keep our kids safe. I think particularly, I mean, all of it's complicated, but particularly Mm. that online space, Rani, I Mm. think so many parents feel like, oh, I'm the first generation to be grappling with this and it's really quite overwhelming. It really is. I have little kids right now and I am very anxious about getting to that stage myself, even though I'm so well informed and equipped and, you know, it is it is really challenging because, as we know, it keeps evolving every minute. Like, you know, there's a new app, there's a new um, way of doing things and gaming and all of those sorts of things and now we've got VR. But that doesn't mean that, like I said, you know, we don't keep um, reaching out for some resources, ask for help and we become a network that can help each other. If we're not talking about these things that's where risk lies and that's it's the principles of communication like you're saying it's Mm. not even talking specifically about things it's keeping that that open line of communication so you can talk about anything to a degree yeah absolutely Yeah, yeah, yeah if we look at you mentioned those pressures on parents before and what what are some of those broader societal factors that really impact on parents and and their capacity to keep kids safe what can we do as well as a community to help parents carry that load? No, that's a really good question that we get quite often in terms of, well, you know, what can we do here? But to answer your first question, what are those factors? Really, it is very much about looking at this in terms of how do we equip parents to be able to be there for their kids? And one that I feel I must raise because it's anti-poverty week right now and until Mm. the 27th of October is poverty with one in six kids living in poverty in Australia. I mean, that's that's Mm. staggering for Mm. Australia. Australia for such a wealthy country. And, you know, we've worked closely with Professor Sharon Bessel from the ANU. She's done a lot of great work talking to children about the experiences of poverty, which has often been a gap. It's always been very adult-centred. And three themes always emerge from her work, and I think they're really important to share. First is that not having material basics is a really constant problem for many children, which means, you know, food, uh, safe and secure home, transport. And the National Children's Commissioner, Anne Hollands, did um, a survey with children last year as well that found exactly very similar sorts of things that housing and food um, and material sort of basics were really top of mind for children, which is, you know, really Mm. concerning that children are thinking about these heavy issues in that sense. Dr Bessel, um, Professor Bessel, often says that some of these things can be bought if money is sufficient, like food, for example, but secure housing and transport require investment in public infrastructure and equal distribution of resources. They're structural problems, you know, so that's the the key message there that we've got to think that, you know, parents might be trying to do their best, but they're actually not being enabled to do their best. Mm -hmm. The second thing she highlights is that poverty limits children's ability to participate in activities and services like sport or having time in the public library or healthcare. Some of this is due to families not having enough money, but sometimes the barriers are, again, structural. Things like schools in low-income areas are often under-resourced. Not all schools have libraries that are open all the time, which I didn't quite realise until I started reading into it and thought, 
wow, that's just not acceptable. <laughs> um, and playgrounds that are less likely to be maintained, uh, services that are not open all the time or not accessible, public transport's often inadequate, especially if you've got multiple kids to get somewhere. It can be really expensive, but also really hard to coordinate. So um, these are barriers to actually participating for children in society and for parents. So, you know, it, it adds to the stresses. The third thing is that relationships are deeply deeply affected by the pressures poverty creates. And this is exacerbated by things like, you know, the punitive conditions welfare recipients um, have placed on them to, you know, attend playgroup or a parenting class or interviews, which again, if you've got a few kids that you're juggling and if you've got a mental health disorder or any other things that are going on in life, which happens for all of us, it can be really hard. Insecure work where we know that, you know, more and more work is casualised at the moment. Mm. People don't have that sort of secure work. Housing stress, which, you know, I don't need to say much about that. We all know how hard it is for both buying and renting and just the cost of living it's increasing so all that financial pressure is putting pressure on time with children and you know for children time with the people they love those relationships is the priority that's what they want the most in every study you'll see that time and relationships are most important and poverty eats away at that time so those are some really heavy things that do create burdens for families. But how can we help? Well, I think it's important we recognise that poverty and child abuse, for that matter, are social issues, issues that impact all of us and that some it's something that we must collectively address. It's not something that one family needs to pull up their socks and get a better job and, blah, 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 you know, buy this house. It is actually a structural issue. How do we enable more affordable housing to be available for families? How do we talk about equity in a different way with more intergenerational wealth being handed down? What about, you know, quality services being available in every community. So it's not just a lottery for your postcode that you get a really great school um, that's a public school and then in another area, public school is really underfunded and under-resourced. So it's about those things. So speaking up, noticing, understanding these issues, talking to our representatives at state and national levels is really important um, so that the issue stays on the agenda for politicians and they realise this is important. We need every child in every community to get a fair go. But then, of course, it's really important to be a good neighbour. It's really important to connect with the kids in your life. It's really important to build that connection at community level. That's something we can all do. Smile at the kids, get to know their names, be a person of support, be a positive interaction in their day. And for parents, you know, to, to offer a lender hand, even in the supermarket or, you know, like, oh, should I, can I watch your trolley for you while you're just quickly nipping to the loo or, you know, mm. like it's just those little things that can take some pressure off parents and make us see ourselves as much more connected and, um, you know, so that we're not kind of left on our own to battle this you know they say it takes a village and, yes exactly <laughs> and by by working as a village then everyone feels a bit more supported absolutely exactly mm. and and that support is critical to children being safer you know you can often just take off that little bit of stress for the parent and then they're able to catch their breath you know and and that's a significant thing we can do while still putting pressure on decision makers to take this issue seriously and address those structural barriers I, I think this leads quite well into can you tell us a bit about the Safer Communities for Children project because we're talking about that village. Is that a bit about uh, what, what that project's about as well? 
Yeah, sure. So the Safer Communities for Children project is something that NAPCAN has co-designed in the Northern Territory in particular with communities and a lot of the stories were designed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and then we've now brought it to New South Wales and are adapting it Mm. here. So it's still in early stages, we're still piloting it, but the idea around that particular program and resource is to bring a way of seeding those early conversations for parents and children. So equipping parents with tools that they can start talking about safety for children in a way that feels easy enough for parents to you know, not feel like it's a, we're talking about sex, we're talking about safety in a really hard way. You're talking about it in a really gentle way of what does it feel like in your body when you feel unsafe? And these stories are beautiful. I can't wait till they're ready to share more widely. Mm. And they're about animals. So it's really about, you know, why does the frog feel a bit scared when it goes near you know, the snake or that kind of sense of parents and children recognising together what safety can feel like and why it's important to begin those conversations and also the role of other adults in creating that safety. So it's not just the parents' responsibility but other adults in that community to step up. And, you know, in our day-to-day lives, that could be the GP, that could be the teacher, that can be the bus driver, it could be the person at the cafe that you visit all the time, you know, it can be any of these people people who start to notice you and build that relationship. And again, it goes back to some of those structural barriers of how are GPs allowed to spend time with their patients? You know, sometimes it's very expensive to even get that appointment, like not many people bulk bill, and it's like a 10 or 15 minute appointment and you're churned out of there. Not much time to talk about what's going on in that parent's life. And it's really important. One of the key things that we try to do at NAPCAD is talk about how adult services, services that are, you know, um, there for adults can bring in the parenting role and talk about, hey, what's going on for you more broadly? How is it with the kids? How's little Johnny going? You know, because often that is where things are picked up early before they become chronic and escalate to being a really significant problem that needs a child protection response. We need to be doing things before it gets to that threshold. And overcoming shame, is that a big part of it as well? Like not blaming and shaming parents? Absolutely, Nance, yes. One of the things is that we know that even when parents need help, they are often so anxious about the stigma and, you know, being blamed for being a bad parent. And, you know, we see this with particularly low-income families or families, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, where there's this genuine, you know, fear of losing your children or having a really punitive response from the child protection system rather than getting a supportive response from the system. So why would you want to seek help? So we've got to restructure that that whole dynamic. We've got to make it so that it is inclusive, it's supportive. We, you know, welcome diverse needs and are able to respond to them, but that it is universal. So every parent has access to these things. Like the nurse home visiting programs work so well because they are universal. So everyone gets that visit after they've had a bub and nobody feels, oh, am I being picked on? And, you know, personally, I was thrilled to get that visit. You know, it was really helpful in that early stage to be kind of just supported through that and and one of the things that was great in the New South Wales health system when they visited was they did wait for my husband to pop out of the room to check in to see, you know, if I'm, to ask me questions about experiences of domestic violence or if I felt threatened in any way or on You know, so it is good that they're using these other ways of screening the, um, you know, families mm. for other issues that are going on. But at the end of the day, there is still that real sense of blame and, you know, we need 
more outreach. We need more kind of, you know, inclusive ways of people being able to ask help for help without feeling that they're going to be at fault, but that it's going to be, okay, well, how can we help? What can we do to make this better rather than what have you done wrong? And that national consistency in legislation or guidelines, that must be a really difficult aspect as well. Can that be addressed? Oh, Yes, one hopes. No. <laughs> um, because it, it is so complex with it being, you know, a federated system. Mm. So And you're the national body sort of dealing within that. Yeah, <laughs> and trying to get, you know, the Commonwealth to play nicely with the jurisdictions but then all the different <laughs> political systems that go within that. It is something that we're seeing more of a national agenda around. So we are seeing more people talking about these things. We're seeing, you know, for example, with the working with children checks and things, we're seeing the Attorney General taking the lead on that and saying, no, we need a national consistent, you know, approach and calling a ministerial forum around that, which is great. So we need to see more leadership like that, but we need to see it in the preventative side as well. There's a lot to be done to kind of address issues within the child protection system, but we need to go broader than that and look at health and look at education and look at how do we build communities that are actually supportive. Even, you know, urban design and things, we need to bring in other players. We need to look at the corporate sector and say, you know, yeah, you don't do much with children and you don't employ children, but you do things with parents and families. You know, everyone, all of your impact matters. And how do we get that sort of national conversation happening about how important it is to invest in childhood. So for, you know, the corporates and the money makers out there, you get that return on investment. You know, the the mm-hmm. better you invest in children, the more likely they're able to have, you know, better life outcomes and be a successful contributing taxpayer um, later in life. But I mean, the social cost, that individual cost to that family and that child, to be able to alleviate that and to be able to, you know, have happier, kind of childhoods is so critical and a moral imperative. What about the way that we talk to our children? Is is that a vital but often overlooked part of this equation as well? Yeah, I mean, as we saw with the child maltreatment study, emotional abuse is on the rise. So, you know, this to me highlights that maybe we need to be having a broader conversation in the public about how words matter and, you know, what that might look like. So words that help. And again, I think it goes back to parental stress. I think collectively, if we can lift the standard of how we address children and value children, we'd be doing a really great job of stopping this happening. Oh, thank you, Rani. I think you've given us such a a really comprehensive picture of where we're at. I think to to wrap up today, I know that NAPCAN has called for a national summit on child abuse. uh, And I think that's possibly good just to really circle back and look at all of these issues. Why, Why has NAPCAN called for that? Why is that necessary? Well, we've called for a national summit because we feel exactly as we were saying earlier Mm. that there's a lot of loose threads here in this federated system. We need national leadership to bring everyone together and say what are the ways forward. A bit of sense-making is needed because the systems are so siloed. Health is funded one way, education another, and child protection comes in at the end, and we see this churn of intergenerational difficulties. So what we're asking for at the summit is to bring together different minds, so not just people who work in child protection, but people from Treasury, people that are data minds, you know, and say, how are we going to re- 
like really look at this whole landscape and focus on prevention? How do we set up some of that governance infrastructure that the child maltreatment study researchers call for as well? So that child maltreatment and the prevention of it becomes someone's mandate that they're actually there to hold the thread. Otherwise, of course, business as usual happens. You know, people go back to going, oh, education's my gig. Oh, I'm doing this health bit. I'm doing child protection. How do we actually get it so that there's someone holding that thread and holding that information of, well, how are these things all tying up together to prevent child maltreatment and achieve better childhoods for all children? So you'd be lobbying the federal government on that? We have been having lots Mm. of conversations with the federal government Mm. and seeing where they're at, but we will also be starting to talk to other partners in those sectors that we want to bring together Mm. and seeing how do we collectively ask for this? What could that model look like? So we are very much having conversations in lots of different ways and very keen to get something like this summit together where we get key thinkers from a range of areas together to look at child maltreatment and the prevention of it, not just, you know, how do we address the child protection system? which is also very necessary but a separate conversation. Oh, interesting because, like you said, there's so many systemic issues involved. It does make sense to bring it all together, get everyone as much as possible in that same room to talk about how we build those bridges to fixing this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I just want to quickly share, Nance, Mm. is that it's great that we are thinking about systemic abuse. We Mm. are starting to think about things as being systemic. So I think that sort of conversation in a public sense has opened up people's minds to thinking systems aren't benign. They're not neutral. Where there's over-representation or under-representation, there's a systemic issue. So I think that's critical to this national summit as well, to go where can we take that responsibility and where can the Commonwealth and the states and territories take the responsibility to fix the systems that are creating some of these issues. Good luck with that, Rani. That does sound really key to the next step in really just getting to to hopefully make some progress in this generation as we started off with. Thanks, Nance, and we appreciate the support of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation in this as well. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.